I want to invite you this morning as we come to God's Word that you open up to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We'll be just looking at one verse this morning, verse number 28. I realized a couple of months ago that, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about biblical counseling in this church. And we, the Lord has blessed us with a biblical counseling ministry here. But I realized that I haven't actually made an argument from the Scriptures for biblical counseling. And so this morning, that's what I would like to do from Colossians chapter 1. In verse 28, he says, We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. When you hear someone say the word counseling, what comes to mind? Do you think of someone lying on a couch with a therapist behind them? And the therapist speaks in monotone, soothing voice. And he doesn't really say anything profound. He just asks you a whole bunch of really deep questions. And he wants you to go back to your past. Is that what you think of when you think of counseling? If so, that comes from Sigmund Freud. He taught psychoanalysis. It sounds really, really scientific. And he would have patients lie on a couch and he would sit behind them. And there was really no reason for sitting behind them other than the fact that Sigmund Freud didn't want to have to look them in the eye. And the patient was then encouraged, and they still do this, they encouraged the patient to begin talking about themselves in this kind of this unending stream of consciousness. You just continually go back and describe things, preferably from your past, and tell the therapist all about your past. The psychoanalyst wants to know about the patient's past because they believe that a person is shaped by what happened to them in their past. A father who disciplined his child with spanking is going to affect his child for the rest of their life. A mother who didn't hug the child enough or give enough positive affirmations is going to somehow hurt or damage the child for the remainder of their life. Parents that forbid the child from acting out on all of their childish desires. A religious upbringing with moral codes and guidelines. A church that taught about sin and judgment. All of these, Freud said, were forcing expectations onto you. And rules. And they were causing the child's conscience to be riddled with guilt. Guilt, according to Freud, was a source of all problems that the adult is now facing. It's because you are feeling guilty that you have mental problems. And if you want good mental health, what you need to do is get rid of the feeling of guilt that other people have forced upon you. And by going back and identifying the events, the persons who brought that guilt, the psychoanalyst can now help the patient and get rid of this feeling of guilt. How is he going to do that? By blaming the people who caused it. It's not your fault. It's their fault. Blame them. Put the blame on someone else. Freud's basic presupposition was that you are not responsible. It's not your fault. Other people, society, your church, your parents, your school, the bully on the playground, all of them cause your problems today. And if you really want to have good mental health, what you need to do is you need to assign blame to the person who caused the problem, which isn't you. Well, that, of course, works in the worldly concept until, of course, if I'm the guy who caused all of your problems while you're laying on the the analyst's couch, I can solve that real quick. I'm just going to go lay down on his couch, and I'm not to blame for it either. If Freud is right, and you are not responsible, then Freudian psychology makes a world in which there are an infinite number of problems, and no one is to blame for any of them. If none of it is your fault, if you're not guilty of anything, then what do you need to repent of? And if you're not guilty of anything, and if you don't have anything to repent of, why in the world would a psychoanalyst ever tell you to run to Christ? Answer, he wouldn't, and they don't. None of psychology will ever tell you to run to Christ. None of psychology will ever tell you to repent of your sin. Freud's teachings from start to finish contradict Scripture. 
And his methodologies, the methods that he uses in counseling, are also contrary to Scripture because they aim at an unbiblical goal. And yet there are some in the broader evangelical church who say that the teachings of Freud and other psychologists are helpful tools that should be incorporated into the church. And that when you come to church, your pastors and your counselors here at the church should use psychoanalysis and blame other people for your problems. I can honestly say we absolutely disagree. Those teachings are antithetical to Scripture. And you can't hold on to Freudian methods and Freudian presuppositions and still call yourself a biblical Christian. True biblical counseling has nothing to do with psychology. And my goal this morning is to give you a biblical understanding of biblical counseling. And I want to do that from Colossians 1.28. Paul gives us five distinctives of biblical counseling. Five distinctives of biblical counseling. First distinctive. Biblical counseling proclaims Jesus Christ. As I said before, psychology never proclaims Christ. Christ is never the solution in psychology. He's not even mentioned. The only counseling method that will point a person to Christ is biblical counseling. Look at Colossians 1 verse 28. We proclaim him. If you were to read this in Greek, and you just read it as it's written in Greek, it says this. Him we proclaim. Emphasis on him. And who is the him here? Go back to verse 27. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The proclamation of biblical counseling is the person, the work, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We proclaim Christ. We want everyone who comes into counseling to look to Christ. An unbeliever walks in, do you know what we're going to talk to them about? We're going to talk to them about Jesus. A believer walks in, we're going to talk to them about Jesus. We want everyone to see their problems, to see their sin, and we want them to run back to Christ. We look to Christ for a lot of reasons. One of them is that in seeing Christ and comparing ourselves to Christ, we see our need for sanctification. You know, if I compare myself to the world, I can feel really, really holy. Because when I compare myself to the world, I'm just going to find the worst guy out there I can find. I'm going to compare myself to him. And in comparison to him, I look great. But if I compare myself to Christ, if I get a picture of what true perfection looks like, and I look at Christ, what do I see? I see my need for purification. 1 John 3, verse 3, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him, fixed on Christ, purifies himself just as he is pure. You look to Christ, you see Christ, you see your need. You see your need for purification. By looking to Christ, we see the world and its temptations fade away into the darkness. Some of you are struggling with sin this morning. You've been struggling with the same sin for a while. And you've got your eyes fixed on some standard like, you know, I want to be holy. Or I want to be pure. You've got your eyes fixed on the law. Or maybe you've got your eyes fixed on your past. In Hebrews 12, if you want to go there, he writes, he writes to the Hebrews and he tells them that your life, the life of sanctification, is like a race. That you're running a race. And if you're going to run this race, you need to get ready for running a race. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Lay aside every encumbrance. If you're going to run a race, you don't want to run with a big heavy fur coat on. That's an encumbrance. You take it off. If you're going to run a race, you make sure you tie your shoes before you start running because that'll trip you up. That'll entangle your feet and you'll fall over. So you tie those up. And in the ancient world, this was a very easy metaphor for people to understand because they had what we would call the Olympics, where runners would run a race. And the runners were devoted to winning. That was the number one goal. If you're going to be in the race, you have to win. There was no prize for second place. You had to win. 
And runners would exert themselves to the point of death so they could win the prize. And what was the prize? It was this little wreath crown you put on your head. So how did they motivate the runners? How did they get the runners to focus on the goal? Well, they ran in a straight line. And at the end of the track, they put a pole. And they put the prize on top of the pole. And the runner was supposed to start running, and he was to look at the prize and run with all of his might to the prize. And he forgets about the other runners. He forgets about the audience. He forgets about all of his problems in the world. He is focused exclusively on the prize. And that's the metaphor the writer of the Hebrews is using. Look at verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. If you want to run the race of sanctification, if you want to grow in spiritual maturity, the first thing you need to be doing is looking to Christ. The first thing we have people do when they come into biblical counseling is look to Christ. Sanctification, spiritual growth occur when you behold Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, there's another interesting verse. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, he says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, looking to Christ, beholding Him as in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. As you behold and focus on the glory of Christ, you are transformed you are changed into the image of Christ. Spiritual growth begins by beholding Christ. That's not all you have to do, but that's where it begins. All biblical counseling must begin there. And for a counselor to point you to anything or anyone other than Christ is for them to leave you without hope. Because if you point me to myself, I realize I'm just going to mess this up. If you're struggling in the Christian walk, what you need to do is you need to focus on Christ. Fill your heart with thoughts of Christ. Uh, Colossians 3, verse 1. Therefore you have been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. Get your mind off this world. Some of you are looking to yourself. You're looking to your own ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't need to work harder. You need to look to Christ. Some of you are doing counseling right now, and what your counseling needs is not your wisdom. It's not your cool tricks or your methodologies. What they need you to do is point them to Christ. The proclamation of biblical counseling is Jesus Christ. We proclaim Him. But then someone will say, well, you know, Frank, I'm reading Colossians 1. We're back in Colossians 1, by the way. I'm reading Colossians 1, and this doesn't sound like biblical counseling to me. This sounds like he's talking about preaching. And they'll even go back, verse 25, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. See, this is talking about preaching. This isn't talking about counseling. And so when they get down to verse 28 and they see we proclaim Him, it's only natural that they think that verse 28 is talking about the preaching ministry. Therefore, it has nothing to do with me and biblical counseling. And I would agree when he says we proclaim Christ, he includes preaching in that discussion. Why? Because there's no true counseling without the preaching of the Word of God. But it's not limited to only preaching. Look back at verse 25. Do you see the statement, carry out the preaching of the Word of God? Anybody have preaching in italics? It's because that word is not actually there. The more the straightforward reading here, that I might make full the Word of God. That I might make full the Word of God. That is to say that he would be able to tell everyone in every place about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether that's in preaching, whether that's in evangelism, whether that's in apologetics or one-on-one -on -one conversation and counseling, I want everyone to know about Christ. And when he gets down to verse 28 and he says, we proclaim him, he doesn't use a technical term for preaching. 
The word proclaim here is a very general term. It's used to describe everything from a public proclamation, like the act of preaching, or a one-to-one conversation. A proclamation was the work of a herald. A herald was commissioned by the king to give a, a message. And the herald went and gave the exact message that the king gave. He was authorized by the king to speak. And if you rejected the message of the herald, you were rejecting the king. That's the word he uses here. It's describing a person who is a herald, who is sent with a message. Whether that is a public one or a private one. And so the question then becomes, well, how do we know which one Paul is talking about? Is he talking about proclaiming Christ in a very broad preaching kind of sense? Or is he talking about proclaiming Christ on a one-to-one level? Well, the answer to that is context. The verb proclaim is actually modified by two participles. It's modified by admonishing and teaching. Admonishing and teaching, those two words, explain how the proclamation is made. You might say it this way, we proclaim him by admonishing every man and teaching every man. The proclamation of Jesus Christ is made through admonishing admonishing and teaching. And that brings us to our second distinctive of biblical counseling. The first one is biblical counseling proclaims Christ. The second one, biblical counseling confronts deficiencies. It confronts deficiencies. That is to say, the biblical counselor confronts you in areas that are not where you are not meeting biblical standards. That could be outright sin, intentional outright sin, or that could just be an area of your life where you don't realize that you're not living up to what the Bible says you are to do and that you are failing to meet the standard. And we see this in that very first word, admonishing. It's the Greek word nuthateo. The word nuthateo refers to counseling. That's what it refers to. One lexicon, one dictionary defined it this way, to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. And this is not saying that it's focusing on behavior. You can do behavior modification. If you want to do behavior modification with the glutton, you know how you do it? You chain the refrigerator shut. Now he can't eat. That's not what biblical counseling wants to do. And that's not what this word here wants to express. Admonishing counseling focuses on changing the attitude and the beliefs that lead to the behavior. You do what you do because of what you believe. You commit sin because you believe the sin will be good for you, that it will give you something that you want or need. Nuthateo is a compound word. It comes from the word nous, which means mind, and tithemi, which means to put. Nuthateo, you could say, means to put into the mind. Biblical counseling focuses on changing and correcting attitudes, beliefs, and thoughts that produce God-honoring and Christ-honoring behavior and conduct. We want, to, we want you to start believing and thinking the way the Bible says you are to think and believe. And if we change your thoughts and your beliefs according to Scripture, you know what will also change? Your behavior will change. But the behavior is the fruit. Take, for example, I mentioned this a minute ago, a glutton. You can chain the refrigerator shut. But do you know what will happen if you don't deal with the underlying desires and beliefs? He's going to find another way to go eat. And you're not going to be able to put up enough barricades for him not to engage in his sin. Because the sinful heart will find a way. What we have to understand is that that sin comes from a belief. It comes from thoughts. Sometimes gluttons eat because they are depressed. You ever heard the word comfort food? I just want some comfort. And if I just open the refrigerator and find something to eat, I will feel better. Do you hear the belief behind that? That peace and comfort are found not in Jesus, not in God, but they're found in eating food. That's false worship. 
Sometimes they eat because they're bored. And they have this belief that I need to have something exciting, I need to have something going on in life, and if I don't have something going on, well, I can amuse myself by going to the refrigerator. There are many reasons that a glutton might engage in eating, but every single one of them engage in gluttony because of something they believe and think. And those beliefs and those thoughts are contrary to what Scripture says. Biblical counseling confronts them in that. And it confronts not just the behavior, but the deficient thoughts and beliefs that result in that behavior. One writer said, its fundamental idea is the well-intentioned seriousness with which one would influence the mind and disposition of, of another by advice, admonition, and warning. And that's why I said this is confronting deficiencies. Because this word here is oftentimes translated as a warning. To warn someone that they are on the wrong path. That they have diverted or sidestepped what Scripture says. And they've gone apart from what God has told them to do. You can see this in Titus 3, verse 10. Titus, uh, Paul is talking about the factious man. And he says, verse 10, Reject a factious man after the first and second warning. A factious man is a person who brings division into the church. They're creating their little groups that they pull apart from other people. Oftentimes they're involved in gossip and slander. They're always looking for a reason to argue. They're always looking for a reason to have contention. And Paul says, reject a factious man after the first and second warning. The word warning here is our same word. It means to confront sin. To deal with the sin. The idea is that the man who is causing factions in the church is to be confronted and then warned. It's done because you love that person. You know they're in sin. You know they're violating the commands of God. You know they're hurting the people around them. And so you love them and you go to them in a loving and kind manner. Oftentimes we think when we confront someone, this means we're hostile. We have enmity because I'm confronting someone over sin. And we think, well, they're going to be mad at me if I confront them. They're going to think we're enemies. And Paul says, no, no, no. 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul speaks of confronting the unruly man. You know what he says to him? When you confront him, yet do not regard him as an enemy. You don't confront people as enemies. There's no hostility or enmity between the counselor and the person who's receiving the counsel, who's being confronted. You have hostility with an enemy. You have anger and hatred towards an enemy, but not a brother or sister in Christ. What are you to do? He says, but admonish him as a brother. Go and confront him as a brother, as someone you love and you care for. Let's connect this a little bit closer to home. Go over to Ephesians uh, chapter 6. Paul uses the same word, nuthateo. He uses it again in Ephesians 6. Here he uses the noun form. And he's talking to parents, specifically fathers. Ephesians 6, verse 4, Paul tells fathers, and he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction, admonition, the counsel of the Lord. Paul here, when he uses the word admonition, is not saying bring them up in the discipline and the punishment of the Lord. This is not causing fear in the child. The term refers to affecting the mind so you can affect the behavior. And you affect the mind and you confront the child so that punishment isn't necessary. So that punishment isn't needed. You don't have to punish the child because the child has already corrected the behavior. One writer said it does not mean to punish, but to appeal to the moral consciousness to gain a hold over men and bring them to repentance so that punishment is superfluous, so that punishment is unnecessary. You bring the Scriptures to bear on the conscience so you don't have to punish the child. You bring the Scriptures to bear on the conscience so you don't have to go forward in church discipline and remove them from the church. This is an act of love. This is an act of love. When you love someone, you are willing to tell them the truth. When you love someone, you are willing to confront them when they are in sin or when they're failing to meet the biblical standard. 
And in fact, if you want to go to 1 Corinthians 4, Paul spent a lot of time correcting and admonishing the Corinthians. And I want you to hear how he describes his confronting the, the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you. I do not write this to embarrass you, but to admonish you, to counsel you, to confront you as my beloved children. Paul sees his confronting of their sin, their failure to live up to biblical standards as an act of a loving father who cares for them. They're being admonished as children. There's a gentleness attached to this. A kindness and a compassion is evidence. Because our goal in confronting is not to hurt the person. Our goal is to see them grow. Our goal is to see them be transformed into the image of Christ. I have one more verse, one more passage I want you to go to. Galatians 6. Paul describes this another way. Speaking of gentleness and confronting sin. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Notice if anyone is caught in a trespass, you caught them in the act. You saw them do it. They have been caught red-handed. And what were they caught doing? They were caught in a, a trespass. A trespass is not an accidental sin. They intentionally did this. They knew what the line was, and they crossed it anyway. They knew it was sinful, and they went ahead and sinned. What are you to do? Galatians 6.1 again. You who are spiritual. That is to say, you who have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you who are Christian, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Note, it does not say, go tell somebody else about the sin. It does not say, go tell the elders and ask the elders what you're supposed to do. It says, you restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. To restore, to put in order. Set them right. Make them perfect. Show them their sin. Bring Scripture to bear upon their conscience that they can see their sin, like in Matthew 18, 15. We don't have to go there. It's a well-known passage on church discipline. Go and show them their sin in private, and if they repent, you have won your brother. Help them to repent. You ever notice that sometimes people don't know how to repent? They need help. That's what it means to restore someone. Help them get back on their feet. Confront them, expose the sin with kindness, respect, and humility. And you say, well, how do I have humility and kindness in a moment like that? Look at the end of verse 1. Each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. You are able to have kindness and compassion for them because you recognize just how weak and frail you are, and you're susceptible to the same temptation. Back to Colossians 1. You go and you bring scriptures to bear on their conscience. And he says, that's admonishing, Colossians 1, verse 28, admonishing every man, that's bringing scriptures to bear, and teaching every man. This is the third distinctive of biblical counseling. Biblical counseling teaches scripture. We don't teach Freud or Jung or Skinner or Spock, that was actually a psychologist. Just want to make sure we're clear. The word that Paul uses here in Colossians 1.28 refers to conveying information. Referring to information on how we are to live. It's the same word he uses in Matthew 28 when he gives the Great, great Commission. He tells them, go out and make disciples. Matthew 28.19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. To teach is to give people information that they can use on how to live. 
how to live rightly before God. That is to say that teaching means you're teaching them the commands of God and how to obey them. And through teaching and persistent day-to-day application, their life becomes marked by obedience to God's Word. 2 Timothy 3, there's a passage that you know very well. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Paul describes Scripture. And he describes Scripture as being profitable, that is, to be useful. And it's useful for very specific purposes. 2 Timothy 3, 16. You guys have heard this passage. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Profitable for what? Useful for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Notice how Scripture is profitable for teaching. It's useful for telling you how you are to live. It's also profitable for reproof. We just talked about reproof and admonishment. Reproof is pointing out error, pointing out deficiency, showing them their sins, showing even hidden sin. Reproof is using Scripture that they would feel guilty about their sin and repent. Not that they would blame someone else for their guilt. It's good for reproof. It's also good for correction. Correction here refers to putting on new habits, righteous behavior. It's also good for training in righteousness. Training in righteousness talks about your day-to-day life, learning to put on the new behavior and then making it a part of your everyday habit. This describes the work of a biblical counselor. This is what biblical counseling does. All Scripture is inspired of God, and it is profitable to make the man of God adequate. Sufficient. Sufficient for what? For every good work. Every work that God has asked you or called you to do, He teaches you how to do it in His Word. And He gives you the means by which you can do it. What are some good works? Repentance. Evangelism. Sanctification. Worship, prayer, I mean, just pick any one of the works of your Christian life. Scriptures are sufficient that you would be adequate, thoroughly equipped for each one of them. What better resource would a counselor use other than the Word of God? We've seen three distinctives of biblical counseling. Biblical counseling proclaims Jesus Christ. It confronts deficiencies. It teaches Scripture. Let's go to the fourth The fourth distinctive. Biblical counseling involves everyone. Biblical counseling involves everyone. This is back in Colossians 1, verse 28 again. I'm just going to read it again, but I'm going to add a little to it here. We proclaim him, admonishing who? Every man. And teaching who? Every man. With all wisdom, so that we may present who? Every man complete in Christ. It's not talking about every male. It's talking about every single person. Every individual. True biblical counseling includes everyone in the church. No one is excluded. And that phrase, every man, as you saw, is repeated three times in one verse. That's the ancient way of saying, hey, pay attention. This is important. Every single person is involved in biblical counseling. Well, how is that possible? How is everyone in the church to be involved in counseling? Notice that at the end of Colossians 1, Paul is talking about his personal ministry. Go back up to verse uh, 23, excuse me. Verse 23, and I'm just going to pick little pieces out of these verses for the sake of time. Verse 23, at the end of the verse, and of which I... Paul was made a minister. Who is he talking about? He's talking about his personal ministry. Verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my... Verse 25, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God and bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. 
Ten times in three verses, Paul refers to himself with I, me, my, or Paul. His focus in those verses is on his ministry. Now look at verse 28. We proclaim him. It's no longer just Paul anymore. It's we. End of verse, of 20, end of verse 28. So that we may present. Now Paul is not just talking about himself. He's talking about himself and other people. So who are these other people? Well, these other people would certainly include the other people that are serving with him. Other pastors and elders, other evangelists and missionaries, men who are in ministry. If you want to see a list of those in Colossians 4, starting in verse 7, you can see Tychicus, verse 9, Onesimus, verse 10, Aristarchus, and Mark. Verse 11, Jesus, who is called Justice. Verse 12, Epaphras. Verse 14, Luke and Demas. These men are certainly included in this group of men who proclaim Christ. But in this letter, Paul says that the Colossians, the members of the church, are to be engaging in proclaiming Christ through admonishing and teaching. Where do you see that? Turn over to Colossians 3, verse 16. Colossians 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Who is that a command to? Everyone. No one is excluded. Everyone is to have the word of Christ richly dwelling within them. End of the verse. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. There's our same two words. Teaching refers to teaching. Admonishing refers to counseling. Same two words. They describe the work of a biblical counselor, and the believers at Colossae are to be doing that with one another. Every person in the church. Just as all are to be filled with the Word of Christ, they are all to be admonishing and teaching and counseling one another. In Romans 15, we're going to be looking at Romans 15, verse 14. Paul repeats this to the Roman church. And it says the entire work should be engaged in admonishing, which is counseling. Romans 15, 14, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Filled with all goodness, that is, you have the attribute of God's goodness, you're a believer, and you are filled with knowledge, that is to say, you know the Scriptures, and we know that you know them because you're living it out in your life. And therefore, you are able to admonish. You have the ability to counsel one another. And he says this to the entire church. I do want you to go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 is an important passage I want you to see. You're in this church... And we spend a great deal of time in this church teaching and equipping and having classes. And we do that because that's what pastors and teachers and elders are supposed to do. That's what we're commanded to do. And God has given you pastors and teachers for a reason. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. There it is. For what reason? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. You have pastors and teachers that are here to equip you, to train you, to feed you. Not so you can sit on the couch and watch. Not so you can become theologically fat and watch other people flounder. You've been given pastors and teachers so that you will be equipped to do the work of ministry. You have been brought to this church so you can be equipped to do the work of ministry. So that you can take all that you have learned and apply it in your own life and go use it to help someone else who is struggling. That's why you're here. That's why you are here. And Paul could say the same thing to you that he said to the Romans. You are able to admonish one another. You are able to counsel one another. And someone might say, well, I'm not ready for that. Okay, come get some training. Come get equipped. 
Counseling involves everyone. Everyone is called to admonish and confront and teach one another on a personal level. Secondly, counseling involves everyone because everyone needs counseling. I know sometimes we think, you know, counseling is only for those people who are really struggling. If you're in counseling, man, your life must be falling apart. It's only for those people. But the reality is we all have areas in which we struggle. We talked about confronting deficiencies. We all have deficiencies. We all have sin that needs to be repented of. Some of what we know, some of what we don't know. And we need a brother or sister who's willing to be honest with us and love us and tell us, hey, you've got some sin in your life that you don't see. At some point, everyone needs to be warned and admonished. Everyone needs teaching on how to live a life that is pleasing to Christ. And in fact, Paul was involved in this work throughout his entire ministry. Remember when he spent all that time in Ephesus? He spent three years in Ephesus in the book of Acts, Acts 20, verse 31. He said, therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish, to counsel each one with tears. I counseled everybody I could. Each one. The focus is on each individual person Paul went to and counseled and admonished and taught how to live. Everyone needs to grow in their walk with Christ. And counseling is a means of growth. It is one of the ways God has given for you to grow. God does not expect you to be perfect in this life in an absolute sense. You cannot be absolutely perfect. But he does expect you to be growing. And if you are not growing, there is a real problem. Peter explained it this way. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For of these qualities are yours and are increasing. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he said, if these qualities are yours, not to the fullest extent, not perfectly, but they are yours and they are increasing. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful. Biblical counselors have to be living a holy life. They have to get the log out of their own eyes so they can see the speck in another's. Even a counselor has to recognize at times they need admonishment. This brings us to our fifth distinctive of biblical counseling. Biblical counseling seeks spiritual maturity. This is the goal of biblical counseling. This is the goal. This is the purpose for which we do biblical counseling. And every time a counselor sits down with someone in this church to do biblical counseling, they have one goal, spiritual maturity. If you go to a psychologist, they all have different goals. Freud's goal was to help you get rid of the feeling of guilt. Carl Rogers had a goal of having you chase your feelings so you could draw out the truth that was inside of you. Another guy named Skinner used electric shock to change your behavior. And no, I'm not kidding. It just depends on what psychologist you go to, and some of them will let you pick your goal. When you come to biblical counseling, we only have one goal. That you would be mature. No matter what your problem is, no matter what your circumstances are, we want you to grow. Colossians 1, verse 28. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Notice again, every man. Every person who comes into counseling, this is our goal for them. That they would be complete. What's this word here for complete? 
The same word is used in Matthew 5, verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. There, the word for complete is translated as perfect. Now, is Paul saying that you are to be perfect as God is perfect in this world and you're expected to be sinless? No. First John says, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. The term here refers to meeting the highest possible standard. James used it to describe every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Perfect gifts are complete. Perfect gifts have no deficiencies. They fulfill the purpose for which they were given. This same term is also used to describe people. In Hebrews 5, it's translated as mature. Maturity in people describes them as being fully developed. They are full grown. They meet all the expectations of an adult. Hebrews 5 verse 14, he says, But solid food is for the mature. Solid food is for those who are grown. It's not for babies. Newborns, if you have a piece of steak this big, a newborn will try to eat it. They don't have the teeth for it. They don't have the stomach for it. They don't have the digestive system for it. They can't eat it. And if you know what's best for them, you won't let them try until they're ready. Solid food is for people who are equipped and who are able to handle. They have grown. Babies cannot handle solid food. They're immature. They don't even realize they can't handle it. They don't even know the difference. They'll try to eat anything. Solid food is for the mature. What does that mean? What does it mean to be mature? Into that verse, he says, who, speaking of the mature, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. They have learned through practice to discern right from wrong. And you might think, well, that's kind of obvious. You know, I know it's wrong to steal. No, no, no. They have the ability to discern between what the Bible says is good and what the world says is good. And then they live that out in their life. And they walk in that, and they don't need someone to tell them, hey, 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 you can't eat this. They know what they can and cannot do. They are mature. They are adults. In Ephesians 4, we looked at this a minute ago. I didn't go all the way through. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that the goal of all ministry is for this one purpose, that you would be mature. I'm going to read it again just so you hear it. And he gave some as apostles, this is verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. He gave pastors and teachers to equip you for the work of ministry. And what work are you supposed to be doing? What's the goal of the work of your ministry? Verse 13, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. To the, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The work of the ministry that you are being equipped to do is to go out and help your brothers and sisters grow to become spiritually mature, to bring them to a full knowledge of Jesus Christ. At the end of Colossians, I told you about that list of men, and I mentioned the guy named Epaphras. In Colossians 4, I want you to hear what Epaphras was praying for, what Paul said about Epaphras. He says, Epaphras was laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect, fully assured, that you would be mature. 
Do you have areas of your life that you know you need to grow? Are there areas of your walk where you are spiritually immature? Can I just say it's a sign of maturity if you can honestly say yes to that? Then biblical counseling is for you. It's to help you grow. And once you have grown, once you are standing again, go strengthen your brother. Let's bring this together. The purpose of biblical counseling, the goal of biblical counseling, is to make you complete in Christ. That you would be like Christ in everything you do. That your life would be centered around the idea of, I want to be pleasing to Christ no matter what. I want to be pleasing to Him more than I want to eat, more than I want to have fun, more than I want comfort. I want to be pleasing to Christ more than I want to breathe. And how does biblical counseling help you grow to be like Christ? By proclaiming Christ to you. By pointing you back to Him. By having you compare yourself to Him and be more like Him. Counseling proclaims Christ to you by admonishing you, confronting you with your deficiencies, pointing out areas that you need to grow. It proclaims Christ to you by teaching you what Christ expects and what He demands. By teaching you how to live. Like I said, if you want to grow, go to our website, gbcburning.org forward slash counseling, and you can sign up. It's free. It's a ministry of the church. And if you would like to help other people grow and be mature, come and get some training. Come and be equipped for the work of the ministry. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his work on the cross. We thank you you've given us your word. You've told us how to live. you told us how we can be pleasing to you in Christ. You've given us a church body. You've given us brothers and sisters in Christ who can use their spiritual gifting and their experience and their knowledge of the word to help each of us grow. And Father, we ask that you would help all of us to have that as our one ambition, to grow and to be like Christ and to be pleasing to him in everything. We ask that you would help us not just sit back and watch, but that we would have a heart and a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would go and confront sin when we see it, that we would lovingly admonish our brothers and sisters, and that you would help this church, help every person here to grow into the image of Christ, that we would be known as a Christ-like body, each and every member. And we ask this in his name. Amen.